Maybe if you don't want to talk, you could just listen. What is happening? I am Mal Foster and you are listening to the latest episode of your third favourite, above average, but admittedly, with all sincerity and a proven track record to boot, infinitely curious podcast, Dined Out. It is season 4, episode 12, meaning last week's episode was obviously season 4, episode 11, and if you haven't listened to it yet, why not? We were talking all about drugs, prison, and God. Not necessarily in that order, but as a complete package. Yeah, last week uh, the show finally got round to tackling the the one and only, the myth, the man, the legend, the caricature, the counterculture icon, the groundbreaking pioneer for psychedelic research himself, Timothy Leary. But rather than do a straight-up biographical episode, I wanted to kind of tune in to something a little bit more specific. So in last week's episode, we took a look at the two most infamous experiments within the Harvard psilocybin experiment um, era, those being the uh, Concord Prison experiment and the Good Friday experiment. Both of them separately set up to look at the possibilities of psychedelics, of uh, you know psilocybin and other psychoactive elements being a benefit to criminal reform, and the idea, probing the idea that perhaps those things, psilocybin, psychoactive elements, psychoactive drugs, can actually bring someone with an already fundamental religious grounding even closer to God. Yeah, for me, it was a really fun episode to dive into, to research and to put together, because I have a big interest in that time period anyway, in the counterculture movement of the 60s, and in that particular topic, as well as Timothy Leary himself. So if any of those things kind of tickle your brain and and you feel like you want to dive deeper into that, please, by all means, fill your boots. It's definitely worth checking out. In the meantime, let's crack on with this week's episode. This week we are keeping things within the mind, but there is not a single stimulant or psychoactive drug to be found. Instead, we're going to be talking about all things neurodiverse. Neurodiversity is a phrase that you may have encountered, you may very well be a fully-fledged expert in it, you may have passed it in your periphery. I am very much somebody that is firmly in the latter. It is something that I have seen doing the rounds, knocking about, applied here and there, kind of had a baseline idea, but other than that... I didn't really know anything about it, which is why I reached out to the wonderful Jessica Michaels, who is, amongst many other things, a advocate, a public speaker, a consulate, consulate, consultant. Oh, my days. Consulate is a completely different. (laughs) She's a consultant and she is a coach in regards to neurodiversity within the workplace. So rather than me kind of faff on any further... Uh, let's get into it. I'm going to let Jessica explain in, in much more detail, with more proficiency and pizzazz, who exactly she is, what she does, and then we're going to dive headfirst into the world of neurodiversity. So my 
My name is Jessica Michaels. Um, I work in talent development as a corporate trainer in the tech sector. And throughout my several decades of working, I have had a version of this conversation many times, which is, hey, Jess, you're meeting all of your productivity goals, but you're failing because people don't like you. And that has been a challenge that I have tried to overcome my whole career and really led me to the place where ultimately I found out that I was neurodivergent, so autistic and ADHD. I was diagnosed in uh, my late 30s. And I really thought was that was the end of the story. All of these professional challenges I'd had, all these weird challenges I'd had in my life, because I'd always known there was something different about me. Now that I have this diagnosis, that's an answer. And that's mm -hmm. the end of the story. Well, of course, <laughs> little did I know that was <laughs> so far. I mean, that was the prequel, you know? Right. Um, so it was, uh, it has been several years of learning more about me and about the community, but also realizing then that the resources for adults that are neurodivergent, and that is, you know, anybody could be ADHD, dyslexia, autism, um, dyscalculia. Um, There's so many things that kind of go under that umbrella, but it is about 30% of the population. Wow. Um, we have a lot of resources for kids um, mm -hmm. in America and, and in the UK, although I will say that uh, the UK is leagues beyond where America is, but still not, still not great. Um, because there seems to be this idea that this is a children's issue, a childhood right. issue. And then we just sort of stop, but, but we don't stop. You know, we, we keep going and we, we need to find a way to be successful in this world that isn't built for us. So now I am working as um, a coach, career coach, using some of my adult education, um, corporate training experience to work with companies and other groups as a consultant to help them get some neurodiversity programming and support in, um, and just advocating and speaking wherever I can to dispel some of the myths and, and hmm. rumors and, and pass some knowledge along about what neurodiversity is, um, because it's it is everywhere and we're starting to make adult voices known in this space. And um, there's a lot we can do pretty simply to make a lot of people's lives much better. Excellent. You already touched upon my first question, which was about neurodiversity, because I did want to ask about that because we do live in a, in a world uh, of evolving language. Um, and I had a baseline idea of what neurodiversity is. And there is obviously a lot more that you can dive into as you just touched upon a few things there. It's quite a, what seems like a broad umbrella but I kind of wanted to dive into that just in case anybody listening is maybe familiar with the term like I was in passing or mm -hmm. has never heard of it. Um, there's a, a sort of a touch upon it and then you can kind of go from there. Yeah. As a movement, uh, as a movement, we're still fairly young. Mm -hmm. Neurodiversity was a term coined in 1998 um, and at, by, uh, uh, by um, uh, oh, oh boy, she's going to. I'm connected with her on LinkedIn and the fact that I can't come up with her name, Singer, I think, um, Judy Singer. She, the, so the term was called, coined in 1998. And since then, it was originally an autism specific right. phrase. Since then, that has kind of expanded to include these other groups, but there isn't yet really, you will still hear people say, some people say, um, I am 
neurodiverse. Mm -hmm. um, if I've been diagnosed with one of these conditions, I tend to say neurodivergent um, as opposed to neurodiverse because to me, neurodiversity is just everybody has different brains. Everybody has different brains. Sure. There's 70% of the world whose brains work similarly though. And then there's 30% of the world whose brains work differently you know they might have some similarities to each other but significantly differently than this 70 percent. so put all the world together we are all neurodiverse it is a neurodiversity culture because we have different brains for those of us in the 30 percent, i tend to think of as neurodivergent and the um the 70 percent will say neurotypical you'll hear also phrases like neuronormal mm -hmm. um neurodistinct um so if you are confused about language you are not alone so is the group <laughs> yeah. so um the best i can do is you know is, is explain why i use the words i use and sure. um, be open to change and um you know and kind of kind of go with the flow because i really don't care what people call us as long as it's respectful um right. i want meaningful change to happen so that people can live their lives so if mm -hmm. you want to call us you know puppies and umbrellas to make that happen great that's fine with me i think i understand where you're coming from i do think it is very important though to kind of get into the evolving state of, of language because it gives you a better understanding of what is being referred to mm -hmm. um, so that was that was kind of an important thing for me to, to dive into neurotypical is is another phrase that i wanted to kind of tap into um what like if you could how would you explain neurotypical in an in a roundabout nutshell way yeah I'd say that for the majority of the people in the world, everybody's brain is, is individual, right? We're all individual people. Sure. But there's an operating system that is pretty much the same in that 70% of people. So even though they have different personalities and thoughts and ideas and, and problems and worries, the way that their brain works is still the same. Mm-hmm. So you're neurotypical because that is the, the truth for the majority of the population. Mm -hmm. This other group has a different operating system. And so not only are they, they're just experiencing the world in a totally different way than this other larger group experiences it um, to a degree that most people don't understand. And um, when somebody is part of a majority, you tend to think that, well, that majority is how things exist for everybody right. and that is of course just just not true. not true yeah no not at all um to to kind of dig into some specifics to try and because uh, uh, alongside kind of getting into the, the linguistics of it to, to get into the sort of mechanics of it into these different operating systems um elements such as being able to read facial expressions, inflection, in tone of voice, and also to deliver those as well. Those kind of dive into to this particular area we're talking about, right? Yeah, I'd say those are very common. Um, they're generally seen as being related to autism, those types mm -hmm. of things that you just mentioned. In my practice, I call myself a neurodiversity coach. Mm -hmm. The reason I do that is because in my experience, and through my work, though there are differences between ADHD and between dyslexia, I'm certainly not saying that they are all one condition, oh, no. um, but there are underlying similarities that tend to be experienced by the vast majority of neurodivergent people, especially the ones that I've come across. So those mm -hmm. buckets kind of are 
communication challenges, which is where I would put what you just described, right. where, um, you know, and that can be things like the facial expressions and, and the, the voice, you know, issues. Um, it can also be just misunderstanding of intent. Um, and that's something that I would say almost all the neurodivergent people I have ever worked with experience challenges in, in communication. The other area is executive function. So executive function is basically, how do I get up and go do something? Like if for whether I'm brushing my teeth or whether I am you know, writing a state of the union address, how do, or a, a message to parliament, I guess, does the queen right. talk to parliament? Well, whatever, if I'm <laughs> prime minister and I need a speech, it's the same mechanism in my brain that right. I tap to write that speech as I do to turn on the light switch. Your body has to go through this process of thinking of what you want to do. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do to successfully implement it? How long is it going to take? And then you've got to actually execute the task and execute it successfully. And executive function is a huge area of challenge for many neurodivergent individuals. I would say most. I would. You never want to be too... Speak no, too grandly, but I would say most and feel pretty comfortable in that okay. um, experience communication and executive function challenges. And then there are some other things um, that do happen. But to me, those are the biggest buckets. But there's some things like physical issues, um, clumsiness and, um, you know, that, that are hard um, that affect a lot of people, if not all. Um, and then there are um, talents that some people experience. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things about neurodiversity is people experience what we call spiky profile, meaning all those challenges that we talked about, if you look at kind of a, a continuum, if you're neurotypical, then generally the things that you do well and the things that maybe you're challenged with, there's not a lot of variance in that level. If we were to draw a baseline, it go up and down a little bit. Mm -hmm. But if you're neurodivergent, what we see is you've got that baseline of kind of how a normal person operates and what their strengths and weaknesses are. And you see super high spikes of talent in certain areas. Like people are off the charts in terms of um, IQ, I think is something that, that a lot of people see um, right. or um, of planning or of pattern recognition. But they're paired with these low lows of challenges. And so one of the things that's hard about neurodiversity is trying to explain to people that yes, these great talents and these difficulties come in one person. Mm -hmm. You know, we have this idea that we meet somebody, we can assess how intelligent they are, we can sort of apply that to all areas of their life. And you can't do that with neurodivergent people. Um, and that is a blessing and a curse, as many things are, um, because people will want the talents without the challenges, or they will say, well, if you can't, those challenges aren't something that we can work with, so you won't get the benefit of those, those high spike capabilities. Well, as, as I said before, this is, is the, the baseline for this. And obviously, we're touching on a few things. It's, it's, it is a much deeper um, subject, which, you know, we, we, we couldn't even possibly begin to cover a large chunk of it in the time we're doing um, but I do encourage people to to dive further into it in their own time, do their own research. But yeah, I kind of wanted to just kind of get a bit of a touchstone, just so people kind of had an idea of what it is that we're, we're talking about. What I want to know is how did you get into, so going from, from your diagnosis, which how, well, first and foremost, how was that for you in terms of finding that, finding that sort of answer that you mentioned before? How was that? for you being told that did that kind of just make things 
feel like it made sense or mm-hmm. did it just kind of like what was the process upon hearing your diagnosis yeah the hardest part of that was getting a clinician because there are not a lot of clinicians that work with adults so i had to go through a very long waiting period mm. um to even get to somebody so we always say that self-diagnosis is valid because diagnosis is a privilege um a lot of people will never have access to a yeah. formal diagnosis and that's okay So once I went, finally went through that whole process, it was a lot of relief. Mm. Uh, And then you just sort of look back on your whole life and go, oh, that's why that (laughs) happened. That's why I did that bizarre thing. Or that is why this never made sense. So you just sort of go back. And then I think there's some sadness too. It's like, Mm -hmm. man, if I had known about this when I was a kid or even a teenager, what could have been different for me? Yeah, that is actually a really interesting point because having that point of recognition at least gives you a framework and understanding as to why this has happened, why that person's reacted that way, why this has unfolded in this particular fashion, not having that and just kind of presuming, I don't even know, like when you were having these experiences, you were talking about having this conversation a lot of the time being told that people just don't like you. That's mm-hmm. obviously got to chip away at your self-esteem um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. There are huge instances of comorbid anxiety and depression mm. um, amongst neurodivergent people. And often there are people will get a diagnosis of um, anxiety, depression, or, or bipolar or borderline personality disorder. Um, and ultimately, they find out that truly the true cause of a lot of their problems stem from neurodiversity neurodivergent conditions they might have that were under or misdiagnosed and that these other things tend to be secondary Uh, they tend to be caused by this life experience of um my my um, wife just came out as as trans and she talks about this experience of just living her whole life in a body that she knew wasn't hers like Mm. she knew it was wrong so every day of your life you just have this feeling this gnawing feeling that something is wrong right something doesn't fit and then you get that verification from these individuals who say yep people don't like you or people think you're mean or every professional person has to be able to do this so if you can't you know and you at the same time generally know you're smart and you know that there are things that you do well it is so conflicting you know i always say that I spent most of my life feeling like I was just a bag of wasted potential Wow! because I knew that I was smart. I knew that people told me all the time I had capabilities to do these huge things and so much potential, but then I couldn't get out of bed. Like, I, how do you reconcile if you are able to do all of these things and you can't brush your teeth, then it's your fault, right? You are right. just lazy. You're lazy or you're not as smart as people have thought you are you fooled them you know and um so yeah it's it is very conflicting um for sure it's it's a tough it's a tough time I suppose in in doing what you're doing now and we'll kind of get into how you got into doing what you're doing now but doing what you're doing now kind of uh, taking a, a, a sort of place in in the workplace and and helping people with neurodiversity address probably these feelings and helping other people understand what it is that they're going through and helping them understand how they see things how they how their operation system works there's got to kind of be a a great sense of uh, accomplishment for you and a great sense of um 
just I, I can't even think of the word now fuck <laughs> I think I think for me the sense of it is oh fuck like that is yeah. very descriptive <laughs> of my general feeling because it's just so big mm-hmm. and there's just so much to do because in the workplace if we just look at the workplace and this right. is a very narrow band yeah 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 there there are some prevailing opinions that people have which is one there are no neurodivergent people in this company. Mm-hmm. And the reason people think that is because most people who are neurodivergent don't disclose um, because they feel like they will be retaliated against. Right. They feel like they will be um, judged more harshly. And, and those things are true. Those yeah. things are not unfounded fears. Those things nope. happen. So you already have a group of people who is scared to admit that they exist. Then you add in this other factor that many neurodivergent people don't know they're neurodivergent. Um, For a long time, girls were not diagnosed with ADHD. It was thought that that was only a boy's condition. Mm -hmm. Same with autism. So a lot of the symptoms that were saying, if you are autistic, you look like this, this, and this, they're all based on boys. And girls present totally differently. Um, Then there's, you know, my generation, we kind of call the lost generation. There's a lot of adults right now kind of in their 40s that are finding out that they're neurodivergent because it just wasn't something that was looked at when we were young. And so a lot of people are finding out now they're neurodivergent based upon their kids getting diagnosed Mm. and then they end up getting a diagnosis as well so you assume you kind of have this feeling that oh if people are neurodivergent they know that's not true that's not true in a lot of cases so you've got people who don't want to admit that they're neurodivergent you've got people who are neurodivergent and they don't know and then you have this idea i feel like you know 100 years ago a bunch of old white men got in a room and said if you're a professional person, this is what you look like, sound like, act like, yeah. look like. Yeah. And anything that's separate from that is seen as not professional. Mm-hmm. So there is feeling that, well, if somebody was neurodivergent, they wouldn't be able to do this job that we're in. You know, whatever they wouldn't be here. They wouldn't be in this room because they can't do XYZ. So there's a lot of stereotypes about what these these conditions are and how they affect people there's also something called masking you know we are in the workforce um but in order for me and for others like me to be in the workforce what we have to do is every single minute of every single day that we are interacting as our professional persona is we have to use a set of learned actions and behaviors that we can apply to whatever current situation is happening to try to make it seem like we're just like everybody else. It doesn't do anything to help us. It's actually very taxing. It takes physical energy. It takes mental energy. It takes executive function. Um, I chose between having children and working Mm -hmm. because I don't have energy to do both. Right. What I do takes every ounce of energy that I have. And that's in things like smiling and making eye contact with people because I know they expect it. Um, It's in trying to figure out what is happening in a social situation and when is my turn to talk and, and all of these things that people don't think about. And they think that oh, you're putting on this face, that's trivial, right? Because everybody has a everybody puts on a different face when they come into work. It's like you do not understand how dissimilar those experiences are um, and not a lot of people are willing to sit down and have those conversations. So um, yeah, there is this idea that people can't hack it. And um, if they do have these problems then they should just slap on a smiley face and everybody has challenges. So they should just get over it and, Mm. and work. Unfortunately, that is kind of the, 
erroneous solution that has found its way into just western yeah. culture for the longest time is slap a smiley face on it and uh, crack on with it i mean i should know i come from an entire country which based a culture on stiff upper lip you don't talk about your issues you just plow through them um, mm-hmm. to, to which has been ingrained in me to some degree but this is this is why having conversations like this and digging into different areas is good because it kind of shows that that isn't necessarily a very healthy way to go about stuff right um speaking of healthy ways to go about stuff let's get into to what it is that you actually do and how you actually got into helping people within the workplace understand about neurodiversity so how did this come about because I look on your profile and it says that you were a former stand-up so yes. how, do, how do you go from that to this I was. That's it's funny. quite the um, journey it you know there are um now that I the more I know about um neurodiversity the more I look back at all the comedians I ever worked with and went Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because most comedians um, have, they just have a worldview that is different than yeah. other people. Yeah, for sure. And that's what makes them interesting to listen to. Mm-hmm. And so having that different point of view is, in many cases, I think, could be a result of someone being um, neurodivergent. Because it is just, you just are experiencing the world. Say, you know, it's like everybody in the world has an alphabet that's a hundred letters, but mine is only 26, you know, so I can still understand a lot of what's happening. I recognize things, but there's just this whole part of the world that I cannot access mm. um, because my, my brain just doesn't do that. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. So I, I definitely think there's some correlation. And it's also where I met my um, my wife, um, who at the time was um, a, a stand-up as well. We were booked on the same show. Um, and so now ended up being kind of prescient because when um, she and I got together, again, he, he was he at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, when he and I met, it was like instantaneous, like, oh, this is different. This experience of all of these things about me that are weird, that are different, that are that people think are strange, we share all these. And so we knew instantly that we were going to get married. And this was, you know, a, a thing because you just felt all of a sudden this thing you've never felt with any other human, which yeah. was comfortable. That's never wonderful. felt comfortable with another person. And so, um, you know, then... I had worked in several positions where I had uh, ended up being a trainer in some form or fashion um, because that was I, I was able to develop strong expertise in whatever job I had. And now I know that a lot of that was to protect myself because if I'm the best at what I do, they can't fire me. Right. I don't get along with people. Like I knew that there were issues. Okay. So I, my goal was always to make my performance and my productivity so high that it made those issues mm-hmm. notwithstanding, you know, because yeah. they, they wouldn't want to get rid of me. So, um, but ultimately I ended up in, um, as a, a full-time trainer and I had, um, you know, always gone through this pattern of, you know, working, getting um, good at what job I did eventually promotion is the thing that happens and the wheels would just come apart because because managing is such a different skill set than being an individual contributor add on that you know the challenges of being neurodivergent so um you know that's ultimately what what drove me to try to seek a diagnosis is because i was looking for a solution for that Mm -hmm. because i'd always been working on being more emotionally intelligent and communicating differently um but to no to no avail so when i um came out at my current employer, I had said that 
um, I didn't know exactly what resources I need, but I was interested in having a coach because I was still, even though now I've got this label of letters, I'm still getting reviews that say you're too direct. You don't, your communication isn't nuanced. You don't identify the person that you are speaking to and, and change the way you speak. So all these things are still impediments. Getting this diagnosis hasn't changed anything. So no. they got me a coach and I had asked for somebody with neurodiversity experience and I'm not knowing at the time what I was asking exactly. <laughs> um, and they gave me somebody who was a delightful woman um, very competent and would be an excellent coach for anybody but me, I think, because <laughs> right. she didn't have the background in neurodivergence. And what she had, um, one of the suggestions she gave me is, so people think you're rude and people think you're too direct with your your communication. So what you need to do is send an email to all of your colleagues that says, hi, I, you know, I'm autistic. I know people think I'm rude. I'm really trying to work on this. So anytime I say or do something that you see as rude, could you, could you reach out? And I was like, I don't quite understand the logic here of this because even if people point that out to me all day, I can't change No. So I don't know what good it'll do. And she said, well, you have to be able to show people you're willing to meet them halfway. And I thought, now, wait a minute. So autism and ADHD are recognized disabilities. Yeah. Um, would you tell somebody in a wheelchair that they needed to get up and walk right. halfway across the room? Like, right. Why are you? So that was when it really struck me that, okay, this is deeper than I think it's going to be. Yeah. And then as I started learning and, and researching, I found out that um, depending on the, the, upon the statistic you read, 80 to 85% of autistic people are un or underemployed. Mm. And that really just killed me because- as many challenges as I've had across my career, ultimately, I have done very well for the companies that I've worked for. My work has made an impact. Um, I am, I, I strongly feel that I've made a net positive mm -hmm. in my, the working world. And I know that there are people like me who have that exact same ability. They just didn't get some of the breaks that I got in terms of, you know, being able to circumvent some of these barriers. So that is really what galvanized me yeah. into wanting to, to help people for sure. Yeah, that is, that is quite a, a shocking stark statistic when you lay it out there. Um, one that I certainly wasn't aware of, but yeah, it kind of becomes a bit of an eye opener for, for anybody that hears it really. Um, yeah, I think I think it's wonderful what what has has led you to to that point. Um, so, what is it in, in your coaching that you can offer people? Yeah, great question. Um, so, it is important to know that um, the, most people understand that autism is a spectrum, mm -hmm. uh, and many conditions uh, within neurodiversity are spectrums. Now, people tend to think that that means you know you're either at a high point or a low point. Really what that means is uh, if you think of it more like a circle, everybody's got strengths and weaknesses in different points in the circle. So yeah. yes, there is a spectrum and yes, there are different categories of diagnosis. However, nobody experiences their neurodiversity in the same way, even if they have the same diagnosis, even mm -hmm. if they have the same comorbid conditions, everybody's experience is different. I tend to work with people who would have a diagnosis of what used to be called Asperger's. Okay. Um, now it's Autism uh, Spectrum Disorder 1. So people who are able to work independently in a professional capacity, 
those are generally the people that I am most equipped to help. There are other groups that work with people who maybe um, need, uh, maybe they're non-communicative verbally. Mm -hmm. So they need um, other types of alternative communication methods design. So there are specialists and, and people who work better with those populations and with other individuals who may um, have a, a, a larger group of special needs than I, I am able to address. So my group of people tends to be um, there's a lot of women because it's a lot of people who are newly diagnosed. So um, a, a lot of women, but anybody who has either gotten a diagnosis or just knows enough about neurodiversity to know they know that this is them. I mean, because sometimes people just know, you know, mm -hmm. I would say people with who don't have ADHD don't lay awake all night wondering if they have ADHD. So, um, so you don't have to have a piece of paper to, to come in and work with me. But what we tend to do is um, it, sometimes neurodivergent people find out like this career that I have, this is never going to work for me. Right. This is not ever going to be what I want, but I don't know what I want. So we help people figure out what direction they should mm -hmm. go into. Some other people, um, and if you're a coaching purist, you will say that what I'm about to say isn't coaching. Um, sometimes people need more just blocking and tackling. They need day-to-day -day strategies of how to manage their time. They're having this problem with their coworker and they want to talk it out. That kind of is more consulting. That tends to be more consulting, but I just fold it into my coaching practice because that's what a lot of neurodivergent people need. And that's mm -hmm. the group I work with. So, um, and then, so we kind of talk about issues and challenges. I will also work with people on accommodations and what accommodations to suggest or ask for. Um, I kind of broker conversations sometimes too between the employee and their boss, or I'll come in and do training on neurodiversity. Um, and a lot of it is just providing people the help that I wish I had had when I got diagnosed. Yeah. Because there's a lot of noise out there. There are not a lot of resources. And just if I had had some person to help me kind of cut through all of that, I think I would have really, really benefited. So that's that's what I try to do for people. I think that's wonderful because I think as as we talked touched upon earlier, you getting the diagnosis and kind of having that answer, yeah, it does kind of make you think, okay, this makes sense. But that isn't kind of enough for you to power for it. Like having that and knowing that in, with further things that unfold and interactions and, and what have you that occur. Yes, you can be like, okay, this has happened because of this, but it doesn't really help you kind of navigate the various yeah. nuanced, different elements to it to help improve your working life and just general life, I imagine, because I imagine it's not just within the workplace that a lot of these mm -hmm. strategies and things that you're, you're talking about and sharing with others help, but they kind of cross over to just general communication mm -hmm. and navigation through life as a whole. Um, yeah, I can see how that would be a genuine, genuine benefit for a lot of people, especially those that are maybe uncertain if they are neurodivergent mm -hmm. or who have mm -hmm. maybe just received a diagnosis and are kind of just they're, they're putting it in the past and as you mentioned earlier looking back at things and being going oh okay that's why but still kind of wrapping their head around this this mm -hmm. new sort of unraveled unopened sort of answer um yeah I think it's, it's wonderful what you're doing mm -hmm. it's you know it is an interesting challenge because mm -hmm. the neurodivergent brain part of the part of ADHD for example is that brain is it's lacking in dopamine and is always looking for things that are new or novel, things that um, 
there's a lot of pressure to do. So there's got to be a consequence for somebody to do something, or it has to be something they truly love. Like they have to have these things in place in order for their brain to be able to say, okay, yeah, let's work on that PowerPoint presentation. And if those, one of those conditions isn't met, then getting their brain to do the PowerPoint presentation mm-hmm is something that takes skill and effort. It's not just going to happen naturally. And it isn't, has nothing. I wish it were just that they're lazy because then we could address that, but it isn't. (laughs) So it is, you're always kind of in this race to build a toolkit of ways to work with your brain or trick your brain into being able to do what you need to do. And then your brain adapts and it says, oh, this thing that worked for me for the last six months doesn't work for me anymore. Now we've got to change it. So it is, it's always a moving target, um, but it's, it is, definitely a challenge and um i learn as much or more from the people i coach than they do from me and so it is um it's very interesting work i can see that because as you said before no no one's brain works the same as anybody else's Uh, you have parallels you have um you know things that are in common certain conditions um what have you but everybody's brain works differently and and so yeah, getting to speak to people who you recognize certain patterns, behaviors, et cetera, in it's one thing, but then seeing how their configuration is different to the, the last person you worked with or the next person. Yeah, I can definitely see how that would be not only just completely beneficial to you as a person and what you're doing professionally um and personally, but also just uh, really interesting to see, mm-hmm. you know, from a human perspective. Because that's the very thing. So. That, that's the thing that I think is really, really great about what you're doing is, is it's very much rooted in a human perspective. It's, it's trying to, from, from what I've gleaned talking to you, uh, is trying to kind of get into the essence of how people work and, and how they can be accepted easier by other people that don't understand how you mm-hmm. can kind of create a sense of parallel. I would say one of the things that is great and also challenging about neurodiversity is it is all of the things that make up a neurodivergent condition, you know, put that in quotes, are experiences that just about every human can relate to, to your point of, you know, it being about people. Um, Everybody forgets a face now and again, loses their keys, just doesn't want to get up and do something. So these things are common across the human experience where the challenges for neurodivergent people is these things happen in a frequency and in a severity and in combination with other factors that make it um, affect their essential activities of daily living. Mm -hmm. So the good thing is that when I break it down for people, they can sort of relate to, oh, I've had this experience. I've had this experience. And if you put in solutions that help those people, you're not only going to help the neurodivergent people, but you're going to help the other people for whom those preferences, you know, are are potentially an issue where that becomes a challenge is, is people go, oh, well, I overcome that. Therefore, this person can't, or it's not a big deal for me. So I know it all. Um, and I don't need to learn anymore. Everybody puts on a different face, you know, and, and their learning sort of stops because they think they know, mm-hmm. um, and, and they don't, you know, the, the other thing I try to say about working with companies and, and 
becoming more accepting of neurodivergent people is when you look at a lot of the solutions it would take to make the workplace better for people, they're exactly the same things as you would find in any good management book. They're um, the same things that you would find in terms of making a good hybrid workforce as we move into the future. Um, they're things that uh, are adult learning best practices. I mean, these are things that don't just benefit neurodivergent people, but they're things that a lot of us don't do in the course of our, our daily work. But if you tackle this issue, you're simultaneously tackling some of the greater challenges in the, the workforce. And you're driving revenue and employee engagement and retention uh, in so many ways, just because you're doing these little things that we've all along know that we should do. We just haven't had a good enough reason. So yeah. um, it does help all people. It goes to all people. Excellent. Before I let you go, Jessica, I, I kind of want to touch upon um, very quickly uh, stigmas, stereotypes, and myths. I am sure there are plenty. I'm sure you come across them on a daily basis. People are still very much entrenched in them. Um, some of them can be combated pretty quickly. Some of them probably take a long, long, long time and constant conversation. So before we draw a line under this, I kind of wanted to kind of dig into that. What, from your experience, um, from a personal standpoint and from what you're doing professionally, what are some sort of stigma, stereotypes and myths with a big old bold line drawn under that uh, that you mm -hmm. encounter that people could probably do with maybe being aware of um, to either talk to other people about or mm -hmm. maybe think about themselves that maybe they've kind of been perpetuating unknowingly, mm -hmm. you know, um, or have just kind of taken as being not myths, but yeah. actual things. Because it yeah. happens to all of us, you know. It does. It does. And the, one of the ways that really happens versus in media representation. So, sure. um, you know, the, the two references in America that I hear the most are autistic people are like Sheldon Cooper from The Big Bang Theory right. or Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. Rain Man. And yeah. what I ask people is, okay, tell me how both of those things can be true if that's the stereotype. <laughs> because yeah. those people are not the same person. And no. they experience life totally differently. So how do you understand that those two things are both stereotypes? And that goes to address kind of those, the highs and lows and the different talents that people have. Right. And, um, so people think that those are, those apply to everybody. You know, everybody's an, you know, a, a genius who can't talk to people. And it's just, that is, that is not true. Um, the other thing is people confuse difficulty with will or skill. Like, so if you have a challenge with this part of communication, it's because you're not working hard enough or right. you just haven't learned to do it better um, or, you know, you're, you're just not good enough at what you do. And the other is that we could change these things if we wanted to, mm. because I'll tell you, I want to change them. Like I, it is, it would be such a different life for me if I could talk to people and just know that we both understood the same thing was happening in a conversation. Mm -hmm. I would change that in a heartbeat. Can't, can't, can't. So it isn't that people don't want to get better. It's that their brains are just different. And no matter how you yell at them, no matter how you call them names, no matter how you demote them, doesn't, that's, none of those things are going to help. So stop it. Don't do that anymore. Um, and I think also too, that none of these things automatically means somebody couldn't be 
whatever they wanted to be, a corporate trainer, an engineer, a podcast host. Um, there is no career that is automatically off limits and no job that's automatically off limits just because neurodiversity is in the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people tend to think that, you know, if, oh, if they have difficulties in these areas, it must mean they couldn't do this job. Right. Well, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, um, Simone Biles, um, Sir Anthony Hopkins, um, Adam Levine from uh, Maroon 5, like there are Billie Eilish. There are a lot of neurodivergent people out there who are doing some pretty amazing things. Uh, and so maybe we check those expectations just a little bit and just allow people to flourish in an environment that is supportive. All right, gang. So there you go. That was my chat with the wonderful Jessica Michaels talking to us about all things neurodiversity, neurodivergent and what have you. Genuinely an eye opening conversation. As I said at the top of the show, it was something that I've seen in my periphery. I thought I had a baseline understanding. And then after this conversation with Jessica, I actually had a much firmer grasp on what exactly it is. And more importantly, it isn't. One of the really cool things that has happened over the last two years with this podcast is tackling new topics from a ground floor perspective, kind of going in with very little preconception or understanding of something or like a baseline, as I said, and then kind of getting to build upon that is not only just very rewarding, but it also opens up the possibility to come back to this topic and kind of maybe dig a little little bit deeper and go into some uh, side areas, go on some side quests as it were, and kind of build up an even better understanding further down the line. Um, Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed talking to Jessica. And if you want to check out what she's doing, if you feel like there is something that she's doing that could be of great benefit to you, then by all means, have a look in the show notes. You will see links to all of her online stuff in there as well. And you can go and see all the wonderful things she is doing in terms of uh, neurodiversity. Next week, we are keeping things continuously within the mind, as my next guest for this season is Roxanne from Honest Rocks. She is an introvert strategist, which if you've no idea what that is, uh, then obviously you want to check out next week's episode. That was a really fun conversation as well. And in places, it is extremely relatable to me in terms of talking about introverted behavior and social anxiety. Yeah, a lot of that stuff resonated with me. And if it sounds like it might resonate with you, if you yourself are an introvert at heart, if you suffer from social anxiety or anxiety as a whole, it's definitely worth checking out and checking out what Roxanne can provide in terms of helping you with some of those things. But likewise, if you don't suffer from anxiety, if you're not an introvert, then it's definitely worth checking out to get a sense of perspective. Anyway, that is next week's episode. Highly recommend it, as I do all the episodes in the Dined Out catalogue. And uh, yeah, make sure to check it out. The best way to make sure that you do check it out and that you do not miss it is if you haven't done so already, simply subscribe to wherever it is you get your podcast from. We're pretty much available anywhere. Just hit that subscribe button. You'll never miss another episode in this season and beyond. And also you can just come through the bank catalogue if you're new to the show. If that is the case, then yeah, that is an excellent way for you to kind of take a look at what else we have covered in this season and the three seasons before it. If you look in the show notes for this episode, you will also see one singular link, and that singular link will take you to all things Dined Out. That is Facebook page, YouTube channel, and the Twitter and Instagram stuff, which you can find me 
if you're on there already right now, at I am Mal Foster, but everything related to the show is in that link. So yeah, go ahead and take a deep dive into the weird and wonderful world of Dimed Out. It'll be interesting, to say the very least. Anyway, that is it for this week's episode. As always, thank you for listening. Look after yourselves, look after each other. And until next time, keep it Dimed Out.